Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 39, we're going to read together and then we're going to go back through sort of really verse by verse this morning. Uh, looking at verse 22, Luke writes and he says, One day he, meaning he is Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sail, sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And as we dig into it, as we just walk through it, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we'd be changed from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have two kind of specific happenings going on. Jesus calms the storm, and then Jesus casts out legion. Another way we could actually say that is Jesus heals the demon-possessed Man, And what I want to talk to you guys about this morning really is the question, where is your faith? And so we're just going to kind of walk through this. And as we go, we're just going to talk about what's being presented here to us. So verse 22, it says that uh, one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And so one of the first things that we need to understand about what's going on here that gives some context uh, to the rest of, of the story here is that Jesus is crossing from Galilee, which is a specifically Jewish area, across the lake to the Gerasenes, which is actually considered another country. That's why you see it referenced here. And it is a Gentile area. And there is a group of about 10 cities there called the Decap Decapolis, um, which... Deca meaning 10, right? There's 10 cities. It's like uh, people refer to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. This is a large grouping of cities that have kind of grown up into each other where it's now kind of been referred to as one area. So it's a very large Gentile region, and, and this is where Jesus is going, which is interesting. Why? Because Jesus is a Jew. Why is he going to the Gentiles? Because there's a change, a shift that's happening in the proclamation of God's grace and mercy and love. Now, 
I say that specifically that there's a shifting in the proclamation of because God's love has always been for all the people that he had called to himself from every tribe, nation, and people on earth. That's why all the way back at the beginning of the Jewish-Israelite family with Abraham, God said to Abraham, through you I am going to what? Bless all the nations of the earth. Now, the Israelite people for many generations seem to kind of forget that the whole purpose of God creating their family was to bless all the nations of the earth. And while God made them separate through holiness, they made their own selves separate through self-righteousness. And they had uh, segregated and separated themselves from the rest of the world, not in an effort to be a blessing to the rest of the world, but to specifically cut themselves off from the rest of the world. And there's a shift that comes with Jesus in the teaching of the New Testament where Paul will even say to us what? Be in the world, but not of the world. And even last week as we went through our statement on the sanctity of marriage and, and the recent SCOTUS decision, we talked about how that Paul even reminds the Corinthians that when he said not to uh, hang out with sexual uh, people who are sexually immoral, he said, I didn't mean the people who are in the world because that would mean you'd have to go out of the world and that would defeat the purpose of you being called out so that you could go, right? We are called out so that we can be sent back into the world to make a difference because we have inherited the blessing that God gave to Abraham because Abraham is the father of faith, we know through Romans, right? And so we are heirs with Christ in the line of faith. And in that line of faith, we are called to be a blessing to all the tri every tribe, nation, and people on earth. So this is important. We can see the shift that's happening here as Jesus purposefully, specifically goes to this Gentile area. Now, they're in a boat. Now, it's not a dinghy, all right? Um, it's not a dinghy. It is a, a boat, but it's not a ship either. Uh, probably this boat is about 30 feet long, about seven feet wide, has one mast and sail. Now, Mike, where is that written in the Bible? It's not. That is the beauty of archaeology and why it's important to study these things. And so you can actually go back and find, okay, what were the type of boats that these guys were in back then? And the reason that's important is because we have to understand there were 15 men in this boat, and they happen upon a storm. And Jesus, in verse 23, he falls asleep. Storm begins, and Jesus is asleep. And this is not just a little storm. Now, why would we know this is not just a little storm? There are a couple of different times the disciples are out on the water, a storm comes up, and the disciples get afraid. But a quarter of them were raised on the water on this specific lake, the Sea of Galilee. So what does that tell us? That tells us that this is not your run-of-the-mill average storm because they would have been men who had been trained all of their life to handle life on the sea. They've been on the lake when storms have come before, and now they are actually scared for their lives. So what does that tell us? It's probably more than just a little gust of wind, okay? This is a big storm, but Jesus is asleep. Again, now why does, why does this matter? I mean, it's just a, a relation of the story, but it matters to us because we need to be reminded that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's beautiful that Luke records for us that Jesus is just taking a nap you know, in the middle of the storm, and he doesn't wake up, which means what? He's probably exhausted. He has been involved, surrounded by crowds. I, now, let me just, some people are extroverts, okay? They like being in a, in a big crowd, but I think all of us at some point, like there's some level of, even if you enjoy crowds, there's a certain point where it's like, okay, I just just need some some space. I just need just need to just everyone just back up out of my bubble. Give me some space just for a minute, 
right? And then we can jump back in. We see Jesus here after expending himself and pouring himself out in ministry and healing people, uh, teaching people. We see him exhausted and sleeping on this boat. It's a reminder to us that he's fully God and fully man, which leads us back again into later in the New Testament when Paul will say to us that we have a great high priest, right, who has in every way been tempted such as we yet without sin. And so we know that Jesus, though he was fully God, he's yet he is fully man. This is a beautiful Reminder to us, he ate, he drank, he slept, and the boats here filling up with water, and they were in danger, and so they're on the Sea of Galilee, this is home turf, this is home field advantage, but they are scared, and this isn't just some inclement weather, but here is Jesus sleeping, rest, there's peace, even though he is exhausted, and so in verse 24, we see the disciples cry out, and they say what? We are perishing. So we have kind of two statements here. The disciples saying, we are perishing, and Jesus standing up, and we know from the rest of the gospel accounts speaking. Here it just says, he rebuked uh, the wind and the waves. But if you read in Mark, you actually hear Jesus speak these words, peace be still. And what happens? The creation must be obedient to the creator. So here we see, again, this beautiful juxtaposition of Jesus being both fully God and fully man. Fully human, exhausted, asleep on the boat, fully God commanding the wind and the waves. We, we must also remember that he was not only human, right? We've got to have both. We have to have both because without both, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is insufficient. But we know that it is sufficient. Why? Because God was both fully, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. In Psalm 107 verse 29, and uh, I think that we probably are going to kind of uh, benedict uh, with this psalm this morning. But in 107 verse 29, it says, He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Verse 30, then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let, him, let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Here is Jesus fulfilling something that was written in the Old Testament, that God is the one who stills the waters, who brings them safely to their desired destination. Jesus is walking in his calling, in his anointing, not just as God and the Son of God, but as Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And Jesus asked them in verse 25, where is your faith? And really, that's the question that I want you to dwell on this morning. Where, where is your faith? Where is my faith? And we're all going to have times and seasons of doubt. Even when things are going good, when we're on our home turf, when we have the home field advantage, but then suddenly things take a turn, they don't quite go our way. And our propensity is what? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We, we abandon our faith in the heat of the moment. But I want to ask you today, where is your faith? These are the questions that we have to struggle and wrestle with before the crisis comes so that when the crisis comes, we're simply dealing with a crisis and not a crisis of faith. When I used to counsel teenagers in youth ministry, I used to talk to them about sexual purity and, and they didn't want to have those kind of conversations. But I used to say to them, look, that you have to make the decision before you end up in the backseat of a car, right? These are decisions you have to make before you get in the situation because when you're in the situation, the time to make the decision has passed and you're going to do what is your natural propensity and bent towards doing. And so the time to make the decision is before you ever end up in that situation. One of the things that I've been convicted about in beginning uh, ministry with adults over the last several years is that we have to have these conversations about suffering. We have to have conversations and have a theology and a framework for suffering before 
suffering comes. And so you've heard me over the last uh, couple of years begin to hammer home harder and harder on God's sovereignty, on him being involved in all things. Why? Because when you're in the middle of it going on, that's not when you want to hear me come and say, well, you know, God's sovereign in all things. You might punch me in the face. And that probably wouldn't be a very loving thing to say in that moment, even though it is true. But before we get there, we can have these conversations and we can begin to understand that Scripture has given us a framework with how, for how to deal with suffering in this life. We understand that we live in a broken world, but we have a Savior who has overcome the world. Now, though He has overcome the world, He says, in this world you will have trouble, guaranteed, done. Even though Jesus died, raised, risen, victorious, yet he says, you will have trouble. But in the trouble, what does he say? Fear not, for I have overcome the world. And this is a lesson that we learn here is the disciples are in the middle. Home field advantage, home turf, things not going their way. They are scared. Their faith is running from them. And so Jesus asked them, where where is your faith? So I ask you today, church, family, where is your faith? What are you putting your faith in? Are you putting it in your ability to do your job? Are you putting your faith in other people? Are you counting on your brothers and sisters in Christ rather than on Christ himself? Are you putting your faith in your job and on your paycheck? Are you putting your faith in, in just your ability? Doggone it, you, you've had a good run so far. I mean, you've had a a good five years of just trusting Jesus, and so you're just counting on your track record so far to get you through the next hurdle in life. I want to tell you that's not enough. It's not enough. You need Jesus every single day of your life. Never lose sight of it. Your faith must be in Christ because he is the only one who has the power to save So Jesus says, where is your faith? And the disciples, they don't really answer. (laughs) They just look at each other and go, who is this guy? (laughs) Who is this guy? Now, we've we've heard this question recently. At the end of chapter 7, we see the people in Simon the Pharisee's house. And what do they say? They say, who is this who forgives sins? Now remember, Luke is writing, he's doing it for a specific purpose so that we may have certainty or assurance concerning the things we've been taught about Jesus. And so he keeps over and over and over again answering this same question from different angles. Who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And so we've seen, this is he who forgives sin. And here, what do we see? This is he who commands the wind and the waves. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Luke is being faithful to answer this question for us. Who is this? We've seen Jesus healing the sick and the diseased. Uh, we, we, we have seen uh, him forgiving sin, uh, touching the handicapped and their handicap being removed. And now here he is commanding with authority the wind and the waves. Again, we get to see this combination of Jesus' authority and compassion. This is important, guys. Not only does he have the ability, I mean, that's we see that because he did it, but he doesn't just do it. He does it as one who has the authority to do it. His ability springs from his authority. This isn't something he's learned how to do. It's not something that, that he kind of had to go away and get trained by Yoda to come back and, and you know do these things. That's not how it worked. He does them because it springs from who he is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and as such, he has the authority and his ability springs from his authority. And those things are both important and good and wonderful, but the best part about it is we get to see Jesus' ability and his authority paired with his compassion. And so we've been talking about how great and how good it is to know that we have a a Savior who is able, but how much more beautiful that we have a Savior that is not only able, but willing, 
desiring, compassionate. And so we see that here. There are two big stories of the disciples being uh, kind of in the sea. Storm coming and they're afraid. In this one, Jesus is with them, but he's asleep. In the other one, in Matthew chapter 14, I believe it is, uh, Jesus is not with them. But he comes walking on the water, and that's when Peter walks on the water. These are two separate occurrences. And in both places, we see Jesus going after their heart. Here it's with all of them. In Matthew 14, it's with Peter specifically. He says, oh, you of little faith. Here he says, where is your faith? And again and again and again, as we go through the book of Luke, we're going to see Jesus commending great faith and rebuking little faith. But this rebuke, I don't believe, is, is not Jesus sternly wagging his finger in the faces of the disciples, but it's more like a father whose child is learning to walk and falls down. Here's Jesus, and he's going, you can do it, you can do it, it's all right. Oh, you fell down, it's all right. Where, where was your faith? Come on, next time you're going to get it. You know, those who have had children have been through that process of their kid learning how much joy that brings you. And when they fall down, you don't go, you stupid little child. When are you ever going to learn how to walk? That'd be evil, right? That would be an evil parent. What do we do? No, we, we call the neighbors. We take a photo. We, you know, selfie with the kid and post it on Facebook. They're walking. Yeah, we call everyone. Let them know. Get the video camera out. They're, they're walking. And, and here I believe Jesus is encouraging the disciples by questioning where is their faith. He's challenging them to grow. And say, hey, I'm, I'm with you. I may have been exhausted. I may have been asleep, but I'm with you. And even when I'm not with you, where is your faith? Where's your faith? Next time, believe, right? So we pray with the Father who brought his son to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help, help my unbelief. So if, if you're hearing this question this morning, where's your faith? And the enemy's already coming in this morning with condemnation, saying, you know, well, your faith is in all these things, and you're no good, loser, whatever. No, no, no. Don't, don't hear these words with condemnation, but hear them from a loving and gracious Father who's encouraging you to keep your eyes on Him and keep moving forward. He has the ability and the authority, but He also has compassion. Verse 26, just a reminder that we are now in Gentile territory. So we've they have crossed over. They're on the other side of the tracks, if you will. They sell into the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And verse 27, Jesus steps out on land, and there meets him from the city, this man who had demons. Now, this guy had become infamous. He is a raving lunatic who, for some reason, has not been put out of his misery and, and the people continue to shackle him up. It, it seems that possibly to try and clothe him uh, and, and, and keep him away. But when the demons manifest themselves, he breaks the bonds, he strips his clothes, he flees into the desert. And, and as such, he has developed quite a reputation. And so we see this intro to this demon-possessed man. He's been cut off from the society that he lived in, and he's living literally among death. It says that he sleeps and, and lives among the tombs. He, he, uh, it says here in verse 27 that he had not lived in a house but among the tombs, literally, literally surrounded by death. And so the demon speaks through this man, and what does he say? What have you to do with me? What? Son of the Most High God. Now, people in the Pharisee's house, who, who is this, right? <laughs> who is this that forgives sin? Disciples on the boat just before they get there? Who is this guy? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Demon-possessed man shows up and what does he say? Son of the Most High God. <laughs> he knows. Now it's important here to understand. 
Mental assent to Jesus' personage is not enough. It is not enough to mentally assent to who Jesus is, but rather we have to believe into him through faith for salvation. There is more evidence that Jesus lived, walked on this earth, died and came back to life more written, extra-biblical evidence that Jesus lived, died, and came back to life than that George Washington ever existed. So it's not hard to come to a mental ascent and understanding that Jesus actually lived and he died and most probably came back to life or was around after he had been put in a tomb at least. Mental ascent to Jesus' personage is not enough. James 2.19 tells us that the, de- the demons believe and tremble, and that's what we see here happening. Because what do they say? They say, um, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And we'll find later in the text that he actually is asking not to be sent into the abyss. Here's what you need to know. The devil and all of his fallen angels know that they are on a time clock. They know who is sovereign in heaven and under heaven. They know that there has been an appointed time for their destruction. And the demon is there and the son of God shows up and he says, Oh, shoot. Is it that time already? Please, not yet. And it's important that we understand that because this speaks to God's sovereignty and to Jesus as well because when it says Jesus gives permission, that's not Jesus acquiescing to the demon. I mean, Jesus has the authority. What is happening here is that Jesus is in submission to the time clock that his father has set up. It's not time for them to go to the abyss yet. And so we see Jesus giving that permission. But let's hang out here for a second. Mental assent to Jesus' personage is not enough. The faith that saves embraces the truth of the gospel and acts accordingly. The faith that saves embraces the truth of the gospel and acts accordingly. That's from the ESV study Bible notes in James 2.19. And so the demon says, do not torment me. Uh, This needs to be combined with what he says in verse 31 about the abyss. What is the abyss? The abyss is the final destination for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus speaks of the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all of his angels, reserved as a final destination also for those in Matthew 25, verse 41, who are not blessed by the Father to inherit the kingdom prepared from, for them from the foundation of the world. That's Matthew 25, 41. So it's a final destination. Speaks of eternal fire prepared for Satan and his fallen angels and reserved as a final destination also for those, quote, not blessed by the Father to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Also, Matthew 25, verse 34, references that that is also reserved for false teachers. Wow. Verse 29. Legion had one goal. What was Legion's goal? Legion's goal was destroying this man. Destroying him. How do we know? Because homeboy is out of his mind, breaking bonds, probably tore up without any clothes on, living, wandering in the desert, in the tombs, among the tombs. What is he eating? We don't, even, we don't know what he's eating. We don't know how he's being sustained. We just know that these demons, many of them, legion, a legion is a squadron of 6,000 Roman soldiers. Filled up in this man, bent on destroying him. 
So why wasn't he destroyed? I mean, we're talking thousands, most possibly, of demons in this guy. Not destroyed. Why? Because God had another plan. God was preserving his life. Using him for his own glory and for the glory of his son. Here we remember the story of Joseph, right? And years down the, down the road, his brothers show up before him. They had thrown him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. Didn't know what the heck happened to him. Then they show up needing food. And their brother, whom they had sold in slavery, is second in command in the largest world power at that time with the ability and the authority and hang on what the compassion to save the family that God had chosen for him. Whoa, what is this? This is shadow and substance of a true and better Joseph who would come in the form of Jesus. But camp out on what Joseph says to his brothers. He says, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good. The pit, the slavery, the prison, the accusations. God meant all of that for not just Joseph's good, not even just Joseph's family's good, but in that time and place to bless all the nations of the earth because everyone was coming to Egypt to get what had been saved from what the warm years of famine had eaten. Shadow and substance, Paul would say in Colossians, that all of these things point to Jesus, who is the fullness of all these things. It's beautiful. I geek out on this stuff. It's awesome. So, again, we see the sovereignty of God demonstrated through Jesus' determination to what? To get to the other side. This guy, filled with demons on the other side of the lake from an area that Jesus even grew up in. Jesus was a Galilean. He was from Nazareth on the Sea of Galilee. And here's this guy on the other side of the lake. Infamous. Infamous. Now, I, I had to go there this week because I'm imagining growing up in the Decapolis, right? Knowing that there is this raving naked lunatic chained up in the cemetery. And I'm just being real. I promise you there were pre and post pubescent boys taunting this guy, <laughs> seeing who could get closest to him without getting like attacked, throwing rocks, doing whatever. I mean, and Jesus has this determination to get to the other side, to get to this guy. Why? Because God had a plan, a plan for what? To save and redeem this man for his glory. We all have friends, family members, co-workers. And, you know, we kind of, in our heart, we, we, we think they're never going to respond to the gospel. It's not going to happen. They're, they're too far gone. I mean... I mean, Pastor Mike, you just don't know what they've been through, the things they've done. It, you, you just, you, there's, there's no way. I, I, I gave up on them years ago. Or, or maybe, maybe you have brothers and sisters in Christ who have hurt you that you've just written off. And you have abandoned that relationship or those people and said, that it's, there's just no way. There's no, way, there's no way that this could ever be repaired. And I just have to ask you, how many of your friends, your family, your coworkers are raving, mad, demon-filled lunatics chained up naked in the cemetery? Just a couple of them? All right. Even if they are, this is evidence that no one is too far gone, too far reaching for our Christ. His hands are not short unto salvation, the Bible says. He's not, he's not a T-Rex going, my hands are too, you know, my arms are too short. I can, what is that? It's from Meet the Robinsons or something. You remember the, the day, my big head and small arms. Like, no. His arm is not too short to reach even the furthest. 
Don't give up. Where is your faith, church? And if people have hurt you and you need some space, that's all right. Have some space, but don't give up. Don't quit praying for them. Don't write your own self off into sin, holding a grudge against your brother or sister. Surrender it and say, God, you come and you do the work and I'll wait on you. There's no one too far gone. There's no one too far gone that God cannot save. And his timing is perfect. Jesus grew up on the other side of the lake. You don't think he, I mean, these guys, when they showed up and, and this guy comes forward, I'm just throwing it out. It's not biblical. It's just Mike's commentary. I'm throwing it out there. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew knew about this guy. They knew about this guy. And when he shows up, they're like, oh, dang. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission. That's why when we talk about being on mission, we say, let's go where God's already working. With your neighbors and your coworkers and those people, sometimes uh, when we get together in smaller groups and we talk about reaching out to people, we'll talk about the person of peace. Well, who's this person of, this, of peace? That's, that's someone who God has already worked in their heart in such a way that they've opened their heart to you. You want to know where God's working and who you should start reaching out to? Who are the people that are already responding to you in your life, that already have an open heart to you, that are already serving you in some way? I would bet money that that is evidence of God already working in their heart. Go after those people and know that God's arm is not too short to save. Jesus has this determination to get to the other side. It was not yet time for the demons to be sent to the abyss, but it was time. It was indeed the day of salvation for this man. Amen? And we don't know. We don't know when the day of salvation is for other people. But Pastor Mike, last week you talked about uh, predestination and election. Yes, I did. Well, doesn't that negate evangelism? No, it fuels it. Why? Because it tells us that there are those whom God has chosen for himself who have not yet heard the message of the gospel. It's not our job to judge who's predestined and who's elect and who's not. It's our job to preach the gospel to every living creature and let God sort the goats and the sheep. God knows we don't. We are commanded to preach the gospel. And so I say with Charles Persian, God save the elect and elect some more. It's probably not even biblically uh, pure, but just my heart in that is just, God, I, I want to see those whom you've called saved. I want to see the ones that you've chosen redeemed. I want to see our churches filled up with the people that God has chosen for himself. And that means proclaiming the gospel faithfully week in and week out. That means not being afraid of what the Bible says. That means being aggressive with the text and not backing down. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to see us do as a church, not just here in these four walls, but in our homes, on our couches, around our tables. I'm praying for you that people would be led to Christ in your living rooms and around your kitchen tables, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, in your parks, in your neighborhood, as you get together and hang out with friends. I'm praying that God would begin using you to preach the gospel to people and that he would bring them to salvation, that you would have faith to believe that God's arm is not too short to reach people for salvation. Praise God. Verse 30. So we see Jesus then asks him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Now, people get into the occult for many different reasons, but by and far the most that I have seen and the reasons that I have heard is, one, they're looking for control and some kind of spiritual excitement. And there are a lot of people in this world right now that are into this. And uh, just recently, uh, MTV made a public statement uh, on their website encouraging 
occult uh, practice for teenagers and have listed out on their website uh, all kinds of different ways to dabble in the occult uh, for our generation growing up right now. And so you can get on MTV and you can find out how to do all the crazy Bloody Mary stuff and all this kind of, you can go and find that and they are promoting that in our generation. Why? Because there are a generation of kids that are growing up right now that are hungry for something spiritual that is real. But they're going to the occult, and in the occult, what they're looking for is some kind of control. But what ends up happening whenever someone dabbles in the occult is rather than gaining control and getting excitement spiritually, you end up getting dominated and enslaved. And that's exactly what's happened to this man in this passage of Scripture. Dominated, enslaved, and destroyed. Now, in just a, uh, well, I'm not going to say a few short weeks because who knows how long it'll take us to get to chapter 11. But when we finally get to chapter 11, uh, we're going to see Jesus talk about demon possession. And in chapter 11, verse 25, he talks about when a demon is cast out of somebody and the house of their heart, in a sense, is swept clean that the demon wanders, it says, around uh, waterless places seeking rest. And when it finds none, it says, I will go back to my house from which I came. Verse 25, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Uh, we don't know how this man ended up with so many demons. It's possible that people who cared about him and had tried to, I mean, we see that uh, they didn't just abandon him. Do you, know, do you notice this? He, he is constantly being reshackled and restrained and, and all of these things. And I believe God's sovereignty is at work there, but I also believe there maybe have been some people that cared about this guy. And if they cared about him, do you not think that there were probably some times that they tried to get him exercised and get this crap out of him? And, and yet we find that we can clean the house, but if, if the house doesn't get resided in, and it remains vacant, that the state of that house ends up worse than the last. Uh, Jeremy has to deal with a lot of vacant houses. The longer that house is vacant, uh, the more risk there is for that house being destroyed. And, and there's something about um, someone taking up residence in a home that saves it and redeems it from that fate. It's one thing to get a house cleaned out. It's one thing to purge yourself of evil things. But if the, the house heart, the, if, the, if the house of your heart is not, if it remains vacant, there's only so much time that that cleaning up has done any good. And it's beautiful to know that you can be uh, demons possess, but the Holy Spirit resides. Demons possess, but the Holy Spirit resides. He takes up residence in us. And there's a difference, isn't there? Now, this brings up a question that I think we need to address when we get to something like this that some of you may be asking because talk about demons. Is this stuff for real? I mean, is this not just spooky movies? No, this is for real. There is another spiritual realm, and there is the devil. We believe Satan is a real Creature created by God as an angel fallen from his presence. He took a third of the angels with him. We call them demons. This is real. It's not hocus pocus stuff. It's, it's real. So then the question says, well, can, can, I, can a believer be possessed? Can I be possessed? And we would go to scripture. We'd look at 1 John 5, 18. The evil one does not touch him. Uh, the touch in that instance in the original translation has to do with grasp as so to detain. We can go to John chapter 10, verse 29 that says, Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them. Those whom God has chosen for him, no one is able to snatch them from his hand. And so we would go to scripture and come back with an assurance that as believers, we cannot be possessed by demons. And that is a, that is, whew, 
Everyone take a big breath right there. Inhale. It's okay. We don't have to be afraid, but we can experience spiritual attack. But even in that spiritual attack, we have to understand, again, the sovereignty of God, and there's nothing that Satan can do that God has not allowed to happen. And if God has allowed it to happen, what does that mean? That he will be faithful to hold us to the end. So again, I ask you, where is your faith? Even under spiritual attack, does that mean that God has abandoned you? No, it means that God is going through this attack, show you a greater part of his character and his heart towards you. Hang on, hang on. God is sovereign. He's in control. He'll never abandon you or forsake you. He will never let you go. One of the things that I've had to come to rest on in the last couple of years, uh, I spent most of my life trying with everything that I was worth to hold on to, to Christ. And I had to let go to find out that he was the one actually holding on to me. And if you haven't walked through that yet, then I pray that you do. But again, it would be awesome if you could make that connection before you're actually going through (laughs) something really, really tough. But even if it takes you going through something really, really tough, I believe God will be faithful to show you, to prove to you, to help you to understand that it was not your ability to hang on to him that was bringing you through all these years. It was actually his sovereignty holding you all this time. Amen? Verse 31, again, the abyss. It's not time. It's not time. It's not, this is not the time. The time is coming, but it's not now. And so Jesus doesn't acquiesce to the demon. It is simply not time. That time is coming. When I was reading and studying this, I I remember just uh, as a kid growing up, being told when Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future, right? And, and, and that's a good thing. And so I would just say to you that when you are being tempted to remember your past in condemnation, to remind Satan of his future and your fully anticipated celebration, we are going to party like it's 19... 19- 79 or whatever. I don't care what year it is. It it was a good one. And we're going to party like it was that year. Because why? We, We are looking forward to the already not yet just being already. And so we understand that God has through Christ saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us right now from the power of sin. And eventually we will be saved completely from the presence of sin and being removed from the presence of sin also means we'll be removed from the presence of Satan and all his angels. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. And we will party. So remind Satan of that when he comes and he tries to throw your past in your face in condemnation. Remind him of his future and your future and how different those are and how that you are going to be celebrating the victory and the glory of your God. Amen. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Fear not, church. You have nothing to be afraid of. Verse 32 through 33, we see that Jesus allows them to be sent into the pigs. We read the other uh, gospel records. We find out there were at least 2,000 pigs. 2,000 pigs that these demons get sent into. And immediately it's like, wee, wee, wee. And they just go run right off the cliff and into the lake and drown. Because that's what demonic power does. It destroys. Death and destruction is the only thing that the demonic can bring. But Jesus brings life and freedom. You know, sometimes when God shows up, we see here in verses 35 through 37... It says, the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Why? Because this guy, again, he was infamous. Everyone knew about the raving lunatic naked hanging out in the cemetery. And so when they come and they see him for the first time in his right mind, clothed, 
not raving, speaking to Jesus, it freaks them out. They are afraid. In church, sometimes when God shows up, people send him away. Sometimes God does something, and, 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 the, and so Spurgeon again would say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And people respond to the gospel and the work of the gospel in different ways. And, and this, can, this, this is sorrowful. Families shun and break up. Marriages fall apart. Friends bail sometimes because someone responds to the gospel in faith or because God does a work. One of the most tragic things that I have seen in ministry is I've watched women especially married to an unbeliever or a backslidden believer praying and praying and praying and praying week in and week out and month in and month out and year in and year out praying for their spouse to be saved. But the time that it takes to see the answer sometimes hardens the heart. And then when they finally respond in faith, I've watched as the believing spouse reject the salvation of their loved one unwilling, and, and, and then they watch and they see the blessings of God poured out on this new believer, and then all of a sudden, all they can remember is not how much time they spent praying for this to happen, but rather all the hurt that they went through waiting for it to happen. And they allow that hurt to rob their joy and steal their faith. And I've watched marriages fall apart after someone has come to faith. I've watched Families break up over things like this. And I just want to say to you, the arm of the Lord is not too short, but his timing is perfect. If you are suffering through waiting for someone to come to Christ, a loved one, a friend, especially a spouse, don't give up. And when that day comes, don't let the enemy throw your pain in your face, but rather rejoice in the salvation and the blessing of the Lord. Don't let that go. And remember, trust in God's sovereignty that his timing is perfect and he has called all of us to pick up our cross and follow him. And if the suffering you had to endure waiting for that day of salvation to come is what God required of you to suffer, then suffer it with joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. When you enter into various trials and temptations, don't let the enemy steal that. Where is your faith? Let it be in Christ. Let him sustain you through those dark days. Let him be your strength and your joy when the pain and the suffering is intense so that when you finally see the light at the end of the tunnel and when you finally break through on the other side, you don't allow the enemy to rob you and steal your joy. Amen? The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so even when that does happen, we have to respond in grace. Even when we do see those who, who are hardened towards the gospel, who don't respond, we have to respond in grace and mercy and know, okay, God, you are in control. They are happy in their slavery, but Jesus came for the man. I mean, see the purpose in this. Notice Okay, guys, let's go. We're sailing to the other side. Here we go. Get to the other side. Man is there, meets them at the shore, heals the dude. And then we'll watch as they get right back in the boat and cross back over to the other side. What's, I mean, this wasn't a joy ride. This wasn't Jesus going, hey, guys, let's just go sail around, go to the other side, have lunch, we'll come back. God had a plan. Jesus was on mission. He's determined to get to the other side for this man and he saves him praise god he leaves the 90 and 9 to go after the one and if he came after you you can rejoice in that and say praise god praise god god thank you i am the raging lunatic and you came after me praise the lord hallelujah what a savior verse 38 be reminded here of the previous chapter in chapter 7 when Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, those who have been forgiven much 
what? Love much. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And where do we see this guy? At Jesus' feet, literally begging to be with him. And, and there's a sense in which he is yearning to be a part of those 15 or so dudes on that boat. He wants to be as close to Jesus as he can. He, he wants to be a part of that group. Imagine. But then what does Jesus do? He sends him away. Literally says, but Jesus sent him away. <laughs> Saying what? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And there's so much here that we could go into. But Jesus sends him away, and we have to remember that we each have different roles. We have different callings. We have different giftings. And it's easy sometimes to look at someone else's role and their calling and their gifting and go, but God, why? I want to be like that. Why didn't you make me like that? Or, or why can't I, I operate like that? Why do I have to be this way? And so I would say with Paul in Romans chapter 9, shall the potter say to the clay, why did you make me this way? Is it not his is it not the potter's responsibility? Is it not his prerogative to make what he wants from the same lump of clay? The answer is yes, absolutely, and he does. And so we don't look at each other and, and judge and, and compare and, and want what other people have, but rather we need to rest in how God has made us and what he's called us to and what our role is and rejoice that it is when we operate in those giftings, in those callings, in those roles, that the church is complete. Why? Because we're called a body. And each different part of the body has a different function. And when we all function in our roles separately and together, that's when we see the greatest benefit to God's church. Embrace the role, the calling, the gifting that God has given to you because he's given it to you for his own glory. Then we see Jesus tell him to return home and to declare how much God has done for you. Notice the connection between what God has done and what Jesus did. Because why? Because Jesus is God. But even as I, I read this this week, and again, I'm thinking about mission and about what God's called us to is Redemption Hill. And I'm reminded that it's easy for us to want to go and do rather than to stay and to be. Because if we can go and do, we can check it off the box. But if we're called to stay and to be, that means it has to become a part of our life. And that's the kind of mission that God's calling us to. And you can say, well, God, why don't you send me to the nations or send me over there? That, you know, that looks like a lot of fun. But in so many ways, God is calling us to return home and to declare what he's done. Yes, there are those that God will send. But the vast majority of us, God will call to stay and be for his glory. And we shouldn't mourn that. We should rejoice in that because if that's what he's called us to do, then we know that as we stay and be, he is with us. Amen. So we come to the end. He says, return to your home and declare. I would say to you, church, again, the arms of the Lord are not too short to reach unto salvation. And I want to encourage us today, all of us, myself included, to return home from here. And declare what God has done for you, for me, to my neighbors, uh, to people I work with, to, to the people that God surrounds me with. Look for the person of peace. Look for the one whose heart is already open to you and go after them. Begin to pour into them and share the love and the mercy and the grace and the truth of God with them and see what God will do. See where God's at work and get, get busy working where he's at work. Return and declare what God has done for you. And it ends and it says, And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And let me tell you, people listened. They might have sat back and watched for a little while. They might have bet some money. How long you give them? I give them about two hours. 
I, he might make it 24. I don't know. I'm telling you, it's come. he's going to be raving. He's going to strip all his clothes off. He's going to go streaking down Main Street and right back to the cemetery. And yet, what happened? You see, his healing was complete. The word that's used here when it says he was healed is the word sozo, which means salvation. And when his heart was swept clean by Christ, faith came. And if faith came, that means the Holy Spirit came. And if the Holy Spirit came, that means that house is not empty. But the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. And he began to proclaim what God had done for him. People are watching. They might even be betting money. See how long you're going to hang on. But the joke's on them. You quit hanging on a long time ago. And God, by his grace, through his son, and the power of his Holy Spirit is hanging on to you. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to read Psalm 107 over us this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Listen to this. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. Let them tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people. And praise him in the assembly of the elders. For he turns the desert into springs of water. Uh, Excuse me. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste. Because of the evil of its inhabitants. But he turns a desert into pools of water. A parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. 
but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. All wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord, for it does, in fact, church, endure forever. Through this psalm, we hear him that he redeemed, he gathered, he delivered, he satisfies, he fills. He bowed their hearts through discipline, brought them out of darkness and into light. He burst their bonds, he shattered doors, he cuts iron bars, he makes the storm still. He turns deserts into pools and parched land into springs. He multiplies. Church, consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Where is your faith? Put your trust in him. Surrender to his word. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Psalm 20 verse 7, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. My grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. For my power is made perfect in weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We are weak. He is strong. And so church, I ask you one more time, where is your faith? Come to him. Abide in him and find that his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Would you stand with us as we enter into communion and worship this morning? Praise God. Amen.